Well, hey everyone, my name's Sam, and again, I wanna thank you so much for joining us today for our online service. This week, we're gonna continue our series on the family, and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk about the important topic of singleness in the family of God. Now, right on the onset, I wanna acknowledge that I myself am not single. I have a wife named Jorley, I have a daughter, Kinsley. I'm not single, and yet, as I've been preparing this talk over this last week, I've probably talked to nearly a dozen single friends about their experiences with singleness in the church, and I've really tried to prepare this message in community. I'm excited to share it with you because I really believe that the Bible, that scripture, has some important things to say about this topic, and it really lays out this beautiful vision for singleness and the important role that single people play in the family of God. I'm indebted to a few different thought leaders and authors who I've really leaned on in the preparation of this message. One of them is Sam Albury, great name. He's an apologist who, who's written extensively on this topic. Barry Denelak, John Tyson, a pastor and teacher out of New York City. So here's the, the, the big idea that I have for today. It's really simple. Here's what it is. Marriage is a good gift from God and singleness is a good gift from God. Marriage, a good gift from God, and singleness, a good gift from God. The overall number of young people who are getting married has decreased over the past few decades. According to a census that was done in Canada a few years ago, the median age of young people who are getting married has, has risen over the last few years in our country. Uh, for men to 31 years of age, and for women to 29.6 years of age. One study I looked at this week said that when the young adults of today reach the age of 50, one in four of them, that's 25% of them, will have been single their entire lives. Whether they intentionally have chosen not to get married, like they've pursued a life of singleness, or marriage just hasn't happened for them. And, and rather than producing this deep sense of joy in the uniqueness of their life and the opportunity that they have as a single person, there's actually a lot of anxiety around singleness, especially singleness in the church. Maybe that sounds strange. Why especially in the church? Well, it's so easy in Christian culture to make an idol out of marriage. Our society at large makes an idol out of sexuality and romantic fulfillment. In our 21st century Western context, your sexual preferences, your desires define you. They give you a sense of identity. They give you a tribe to roll with. And it's easy in the church just to Christianize that, to Christianize that same idolatry of sex by making an idol out of marriage. One author said it like this, said singles today are a widow of sorts, needing to be listened to and needing a framework for who we are and how we fit in the family of God. What does it mean to abstain from sex while respecting sexual wirings? What does it mean to be content in one's singleness while longing towards marriage? Can I be sexual without a spouse? Is a spouse something I'm allowed to keep hoping for? What does it mean to be beautiful and to embody sexuality? What does it mean to wait proactively and to desire genuinely and passionately. To those who are single, have you ever asked yourself those questions? Sometimes it can be portrayed that, that life really begins when you grow up and get married, and then you really get taken seriously when you have children. But until then, you're kind of looked at as a junior member of the family of God. It can feel lonely, there can be a sense of, of rejection, or even just maybe an invisibleness. Last week, I was, I was chatting with one of my single friends named Jemima, and she said this of her experience. She said that in her experience, church leaders have not done a great job of discipling single people. She said church leaders uh, have often said to her, when you get married, you could do this, or, or once you have a husband, your ministry could look like that. And so she said she'd often think, well, what's wrong with what I have right now? Am I not whole in Christ now? 
Can God not use me if I never find a husband? She said, I didn't think I could lead in the church until I got married. I always thought I had to minister alongside my husband and then somehow I would become a better leader or something and so I held back. And as I talked to, to a number of different single people, some in our church, some outside our church, many felt the same thing. In first century Jewish culture, marriage was, was almost held up as the ultimate in life. To be unmarried was, was shameful and regarded as disobedient to the creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1, that humans were to be fruitful and multiply. More on that later. Uh, but, but there was no question in Jewish teaching that among the highest calling of God on humans, rooted all the way back to the creation account, was that all should marry and produce children and grandchildren and fill the earth. And this didn't only present challenges for single people, but, but also for women who were unable to conceive. There was this horrible stigma rooted out of a bad theology that those who were unable to have children were somehow cursed by God or for some reason were unable to fulfill their God-given calling on the earth. But Jesus and the various New Testament authors seemed to see things differently. Jesus validated single people. And all throughout the New Testament writings, we see an absolutely high view of marriage and its role among the people of God, but also a very high view of singleness as lived out in obedience to Christ. For example, in Matthew 19, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn there right now? And in the first few verses of, of that chapter, Jesus presents this really high view of marriage as this lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. He, he's teaching on marriage, and, and, and this would have been mind-bending and, and controversial, empowering for women in a society where they were viewed as just property of their husbands where a man could divorce his wife for just about anything if she looked at him the wrong way, if she was unable to bear a child, if she burned the food. And in a patriarchal society, this would often leave a divorced woman without a home, without food, no security, often out on the streets. And Jesus says, no, it's not good for a man to treat his wife like this. And he presents this, this beautiful vision of a marriage and, and, he, and he says these simple words. You've probably heard them if you've been to a, to a wedding in the last number of years. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. His disciples, they hear these words that Jesus has taught and, uh, and that he's presented and they say this in verse 10. They say, if, if such is the case for a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> Essentially, they're saying, wow, that is a high bar. And if that's what's required, maybe it's better that we stay single. And then Jesus replies with these words in Matthew chapter 19, verse 11. He says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to, to those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Okay, what's the deal here with eunuchs? And what does this have to do with our conversation on singleness? Well, first, this is not a term that we use in today's culture, nor a topic we often discuss. But essentially, eunuchs was this blanket term that was used to refer to those who, for various reasons, were celibate, had never married, never had a sexual relationship. There were different kinds of eunuchs, and, and Jesus outlines this in the text. There was first eunuchs who, who, who were eunuchs from birth. Scholars understand this to be intersex people who were born with a sort of human condition. Number two, there was eunuchs who'd been made eunuchs by men. These were typically people who were castrated, oftentimes because of their role working with the royal family. If, if they were unable to reproduce and have kids, then they posed no real threat or rival to the royal family. And so this was kind of common practice for servants of the king. And then there's this third category that Jesus presents. And this one would have been a shocker to his hearers. 
They were well aware of the first two categories, but then Jesus says that there's also eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. This would have been a new one. Why would anyone willfully make themselves a eunuch? In other words, in other words why would anyone stay single on purpose? And moreover, is, is Jesus saying that this would be pleasing to God? Eunuchs were looked down upon. They were thought of as less than a real man, scoffed at. If you chose not to marry, that was a dead end to your ancestry. Your, your children was your retirement plan. No one would willfully choose to remain unmarried, or so the hearers would have thought. And yet Jesus presents singleness, he presents celibacy as a legitimate way of life for someone who is committed to God and his kingdom work. He says, let the one who's able to receive this, receive it. In other words, Jesus is saying, not everyone's able to be single, but to those who can, they should. And this is consistent with what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says this, uh, after he's just given a whole bunch of commands about, about marriage and a whole bunch of kind of vision of what that should look like, he says this in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one from another. To the unmarried and to the widow, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Probably not the most romantic way to propose to someone. You know, I can't exercise self-control. I'm burning with passion. Will you marry me? Uh, but there's so much in this text that we could unpack together. But in verse 7, um, I, I just want to point out what Paul says here. He says, each has his own gift from God. One has one kind, marriage, and one has another kind, singleness. According to Paul, both marriage and singleness are a good gift from God. Okay, let's park here for a sec. The argument in this passage of scripture, and echoed all throughout the New Testament writings, is, is that where you are in life right now is God's gift to you. If you're a single person right now, that's God's gift to you. If you're a married person right now, that's God's gift to you. Again, Sam Albury wrote this. He said, many of our default settings see singleness in terms of deficiency. It's the absence of a good thing, marriage, and the romantic and sexual fulfillment that marriage seems to present. Single people are unmarried. While we would never think of a married person as unsingle, uh, it's singleness that seems to be wanting and deficient. It's like the only way to cope with it is if God gives some sort of special superpower. And although there might be some superheroes among us, there, there, there's nowhere in scripture that would teach us that the gift of singleness is a superpower or a gift that's given to a few that removes their longing for intimacy. Both singleness and marriage are a good gift from God. Some of you who are single might be saying, well, it doesn't feel like a gift. And if this is a gift, it's a gift I'd like to give back. Like I think about the, the game of Pink Elephant, you know, the Christmas game where you, where you pick a, a gift from under the tree and you unpack it and that's your gift, but others have the opportunity to steal that gift. And as the game goes on, this starts to happen. And sometimes you're stuck with a really lame gift, like a set of tea towels or a dollar store flashlight. And the whole time you're hoping that someone else will take your gift. Maybe, maybe you're thinking right now, if this is my gift, can I trade it? I don't want this gift. Maybe there's even some here today that, that are married and you would say, my marriage doesn't feel like a gift. Okay, well, what does it mean to be given a gift from God? Whenever we see the, the language of God giving gifts in scripture, it's, it's not a guarantee that the gift comes without struggle. Actually, most of the time, it's quite the opposite. 
There's often sacrifice and opposition that's involved as you grow in your gift. But what we see in scripture is, is that gifts from God are ultimately for our flourishing and for the good of others. When, when God gives gifts to his people, it's not just for them, but it's for the glory of God and the building up and the edification of the church. And then ultimately, the building up and edification and renewal of the world. For example, the, the gifts of the Spirit, hospitality and preaching, service, prophecy, encouragement. In, in the using of my God-given spiritual gifts, I build up the body into the fullness of what God has made her to be. And it's the same thing with singleness and marriage for that matter. The place where you find yourself in life right now, whether single or married, presents a unique opportunity for you to serve God and the people around you in ways that others, because of their stage of life, might not be able to as easily. Some who are single are prayerfully awaiting a future spouse, and that's great, but don't wait until that day. Don't wait until you're married to start living out the things that God's placed on your heart to do. It is possible for you to fully thrive, to find fulfillment, and, and truly become the person God's made you to be with or without a spouse. The way I want to structure the rest of our time together today is I want to look at a few myths of singleness that are especially popular in Christian culture. And then I want to look at how Jesus and the other biblical authors dispute these myths and present a vision for human flourishing of the single men and women in the family of God. The first myth I want to look at is this idea that singleness is the absence of intimacy. There's, there's certainly an assumption in our culture that singleness and intimacy are alternatives. That Christians have a choice between marriage and loneliness, but this shouldn't be the case. We can manage without sex. We see this in, in scripture. Look at the life of Jesus or Paul and many, many others throughout church history or even in our own community. We can manage without sex, but we were not designed to live without intimacy. The challenge is that our culture has tied the two and promotes this kind of ideology where intimacy occurs only in the context of sexual relationships, which, which honestly just shows how little our culture understands about true friendship. Uh, let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. King David, he, he wrote a song about his best friend Jonathan after he'd passed away. And, and here are some of the lyrics from that song recorded in verse 26. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan, very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. Hearing these, these words in today's day, we might automatically assume that there was some sort of romantic relationship between David and Jonathan. Maybe you'd say, okay, that sounds like a little bit more than friendship. But that wasn't the case. We know a lot about the life and the struggles of King David, but this wasn't one of them. Was there deep intimacy? Yes. A friendship that was stronger than any other human bond? Yes. Uh, we need to rediscover a biblical category for intimacy in friendship. Think about it. A friend in, in 2021 is, is someone you accept on social media and allow to view your profile, to see your photos, to post a greeting message for you on your birthday. To friend someone is to, to add them to your list of contacts, which is hardly surprising why for most people today, a friend is simply an acquaintance that you catch up with every once in a while. Maybe you send them a text message or best case scenario, hit them up for a coffee date every once in a while. Even 60 years ago, before the rise of Instagram and Facebook, C.S. Lewis could see that friendship had become something he described as quite marginal not a main course in life's banquet, a diversion, something that fills up the chick of one's time. And he concluded, few value it because few have experienced it. 
Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This is something that was modeled beautifully by Jesus our Savior. There's, there's this great line in John chapter 15. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 15. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have learned from the Father, I have made known to you. I love that. Jesus is our master. We are his servants, but our relationship with him goes so much deeper than that. See, a boss has no obligation to explain his intentions or to get close and personal to his employees. But notice Jesus' reasoning for why he calls them friends. Because they know him. They know what he's doing. He's drawn close to them. A friend opens up and exposes themselves, the good and the bad, for who they really are. And this is what we all need. Proverbs, it commends friendship not because it's a nice bonus in life, but because it's a key to living wisely in God's world. It's possible to have a lot of sex and no intimacy. But the opposite is also true. It's possible to have a lot of intimacy in life and for none of it to be sexual. Now, before moving on from here, I think it's important to note that, that friendship isn't only an important thing for singles to be thinking about. It's possible that there's married or engaged couples that are here listening and they're thinking, oh, it's so good that the singles in our church are hearing teaching on this. But, but friendship is also a critical part in the life of a husband and a wife in marriage. I've seen more than one marriage really struggle because the couple had looked entirely to one another to meet all their friendship and intimacy needs. And they ne neglected to, to, to develop good, deep, intimate Christian friendships alongside their marriage. It's not always easy to foster close friendships when you have an established family, but it is a vital discipline to open up your family to, to those around you. As people, as humans, we need close friendships. And that's why for as long as we are a church, we will continue. You'll hear us nonstop, always going on about the importance of community groups. Not because it's some cute program that we offer, but because God has designed us with this need for one another, single people, married people, children, retired people, sitting around a table together, eating together, studying together, celebrating the joys of life together, grieving the pains of life together. If you're not in a community group, I wanna urge you right now, get in a group. Uh, at this time, we're meeting on Zoom or outdoors, but go sign up. And if you are in a community group, this week, I want to encourage you to, to become even just a little more vulnerable with the people that you meet with. Don't put on your best face and just pretend that everything's okay if it's not. Expose the real you and surround one another with love and acceptance and grace. Okay, the second myth that I want to look at today is that singleness means no family. It's a, it's, it's a common thought for, for people to assume that singleness means closing the door on having a family, but this shouldn't be the case. Just like the Bible presents a different view of friendship, it also presents a really different view of the family. Look at Mark chapter 33, or sorry, Mark chapter 3, verse 33. Jesus answers them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus reconfigures how we think about family. His real family isn't defined primarily by, by biological lines, but by spiritual ones. And this is absolutely foundational to the New Testament and how it goes on to describe the, the family as the people of God. 
It means that if we're Christians and if we have the privilege of belonging to a biological family or even being adopted into a physical family, we shouldn't think of that as our only family. On the other hand, if we don't have physical brothers and sisters or sons, daughters, husbands, or wives, we also shouldn't think that we're left with no experience of family. Actually, Jesus says that the opposite is true. And again, in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. I want to point out a few important things that, that Jesus says in these few words that we just read. The first one is that, that Jesus assumes that people will leave things to follow him. It's the basics of Christian discipleship. Over and over again, Jesus comes back to this idea that there is a cost to following him. Secondly, Jesus assumes that the most costly thing that we will leave is, is one's family relationships. For some followers of Jesus, even in the modern day, this is literally the case. People for some, from some backgrounds, they know that the moment they say yes to Jesus, they'll be forever shunned by their, by their biological families. There's some in our church who have lived that reality, and I can't imagine how difficult that must be. Thirdly, notice how Jesus responds to all of that. He doesn't just tell them to grit their teeth and wait for the age to come when it will finally all prove to be worth it. Instead, Jesus shows them that, that it, it will be worth it even in the here and now on this side of eternity. Whatever someone might, might have to leave behind to follow him, he will replace with something even greater. Even those who leave behind full family networks for the sake of Jesus will receive back from him so much more. Sam Albury sort of cheekily writes this. He says, this is the true prosperity gospel. Jesus doesn't promise us greater wealth and prosperity if we follow him. He doesn't promise a growing property portfolio if we go all in with him. He doesn't say that for every dollar you give him, he'll give you a hundred back. No, just as the cost is in relational familial terms, so too is the blessing Jesus promises us, family. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And yes, a side order of persecution too, whether you've ordered it, ordered it or not. That just comes part and parcel of the bundle. Jesus' words are really an extension of, of what God has always promised to do. In Psalm 68 verse 6, it says that God sets the lonely in families. And it's so easy for us to reach a verse like this and to think, oh, it's so nice that God does that, that he provides families for the lonely. Until we realize that it's our families that he's promising. It's in our homes that God is placing the lonely people in. It makes the promise somewhat unusual because there's a sense where it depends on us to fulfill it. Those who would otherwise be alone are grafted into the community life of the people of God. When God draws people to himself, he draws them to each other as well. The people of Jesus are to be family. We need to ensure that, that in our church family, that at CA Church, there's no lack of family, community, and intimacy for singles. Otherwise, we're calling Jesus a liar. Jesus promises that those who come to him will have more family than they ever would have had if they'd stayed away. Okay, so God puts the lonely in families, but what about kids? Maybe you're single and you're saying, Sam, I can get over the fact that I may never have a spouse, but I have always dreamed of being a mom or being a dad. 
I talked to a few single people this last week who said that, that singleness is especially difficult and painful when they reached the age where their friends were all announcing the birth of new babies. And although they were overjoyed for their friends and their growing family tree, it also served as a reminder over and over again that this is something that they may never have. Wow, that is hard. And to those who want to have children and for one reason or another cannot, I grieve with you. As I was studying this week, I, uh, I was struck by the life of Paul, Paul the Apostle, and specifically the way he addresses Timothy in his letter uh, by the same name. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Paul says this, he says, Timothy, my true child in the faith. Again, in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 17, he says, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child, in the Lord. And this challenges the way that we typically think about Paul. We tend to think of him as single, never married, didn't have kids, but that's not entirely true. Paul, he was single, he wasn't married, but he did have kids. He describes Timothy as his true child. And, and that's not some first century kind of equivalent of saying, hey kiddo, at the start of a text. Paul literally describes Timothy as a begotten son. And he doesn't only talk about this father-son relationship with Timothy, but he also refers in, in different letters uh, to, to Onesimus and, and Titus in the same way. John Piper, he said this, Paul was a great father and never married. And does he not speak beautifully for single women in Christ in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 when he writes, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So it will be said of many single women in Christ, she was a great mother and never married. Matthew Lee Anderson, an author and thought leader, also wrote uh, that the church needs to think more expansively about the whole concept of parenthood. Here's what he said. Within the, the community of the church, parenthood is a vocation open to all, including singles and the infertile. It's an ecclesiastically centered way of cultivating maternal and paternal love in the deepest orientation, namely towards the kingdom. If this is true, then there are aspects of parenthood that are disclosed to singles and infertile people. It's not a realm closed to them. A lot of times the concern that's raised about singleness within the church is that it neglects the creation mandate, which I referred to earlier, that's be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish and the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The creation mandate is, is humanity's responsibility to the world where we live. It presents our, our collective vocation from God. This is, this is what we were made to do, all of us. It's, it's a big deal. One single Christian author uh, wrote this. Well, I'm not directly helping to fill the earth. It's not the whole story. There are less direct ways in which we singles contribute to the fulfillment of the creation mandate. Multiplying and filling is more than simply producing. Many people who are unable to have children adopt. Many who never have children, either biological or through adoption, nevertheless play a vital part in the care and nurture of others. I may not be directly causing population expansion, but I'm a vital part of the growth of other people through friendship and involvement in their lives, just as they are a vital part of my growth. As we invest constructively in the lives of others, we are contributing tangibly to the creation mandate. See, singles may not be adding to the number of people on the earth, but I know a lot of single people who are contributing significantly to the quality of people that the earth is being filled with. When I think about that, my mind immediately goes to someone who's famously known in our home as Auntie Anna. 
Some of you would know Anna as she's part of our community here. Anna lives with our family and, and she's single. She pours her whole life into, into hundreds of young adults through her work at Pacific Life Bible College. And, and truthfully, she's probably the closest thing that my daughter has to, to a third parent. Anna is instrumental in Kinsley's development and she's maybe Kinsley's favorite person on the planet. She's really legitimately helping to raise Kinsley into the way of Jesus. And my hope and prayer is that as Kinsley grows up, of course I want her to always feel she can share anything with Jorley or with myself. But I've also heard that those teen years are really hard and that there's times where kids don't want to talk to their parents. But I love that Kinsley has her Auntie Anna. And I imagine that there's days in middle school and, and I imagine these days that, that maybe she'll, she'll come home and they'll sit on the bed, they'll crack open a tub of ice cream and they'll talk about boys and cliques and bullies and doubts. And although Anna doesn't have any kids of her own right now, she does play an incredibly important part in the life of Kinsley and in our overall family life. I also think about Sasha, who's on our kids' staff here at the church. Sasha is a single woman, but she has many spiritual children, kids that she has poured her whole life into and partnered with parents and informing them into the way of Jesus. Or my friend Mike, who's, who's an amazing guy. He's, he's amazing with kids and he longs to be a dad. And we pray often that one day he will be, but until then, he's an amazing uncle. And when our physical services were on, I loved seeing him run around the foyer or the parking lot with little kids, just bringing so much joy as he has found his place in the family of God. Where Genesis calls humanity to make more people, Jesus calls his new humanity to make disciples, to help men and women and children to reflect the image of God and to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. For the earth to be filled with the image of God, people need to be in relationship with and grow in the likeness of the one who is the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus that the whole creation mandate reaches its climax and both singles and married folk have an important part to play as we partner with God in his renewing work to seek and save a people to himself. Okay, there's so much I would love to say on this topic, but I'm running out of time, so I'll say this. To singles, we love you. You are a critical part of the family of God. You belong here at CA Church. The stage of life that you find yourself in right now is God's gift to you. Don't hold back, engage in ministry, thrive in all that God has called you to be. You are family here. And to those who, who are married, who have families, I wanna urge you to include single people in your family life. In this season where restrictions are limited uh, to, to the bubble size and all that kind of stuff, is there a single person that you could include in your bubble? who you could share meals with, get to know, welcome into your family? Who do you maybe need to give a house key to and really include into the fabric of your family and your home? The blessing is mutual, and as you build intimate friendships with people from all walks of life, I believe that Jesus will use it to form you more and more into his image. When we do gather together again, let's intentionally look for those who are sitting alone and make a commitment with one another that there will be no lonely people among us. One single person that I was talking to from our church this last week said the reason they decided to come to CA Church is because Mark and Val Kinney, a couple in our community, invited her to sit with them in church. They struck up a friendship and there's just this power of welcome, of hospitality and getting past the awkwardness of the unknown and inviting others into our lives. And in doing that, we model the way of Jesus himself as he lived and walked on the earth. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, Today, I just pray that the things that I've shared in this message that are from your heart, that those would, 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 would fall on good soil, that they would find good root in the lives of your people.
And I pray right now for my single brothers and sisters. To those who right now, whether desirable or whether longing for marriage, find themselves in a place of singleness, I pray that you would sustain them, that you would provide good, deep friendships for them and, uh, and help us as the family of God to surround one another and to, and to build that kind of intimacy that we see in friendship as outlined in scripture. I pray that there would be no lonely people around us. Help us to reach out, to see, give us eyes to see those who need to be included into our families and our communities. And uh, do a good work in us, we pray. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.